Baxi's Musical Podcast. According to the dictionary, which is a very large book full of words, the term demob happy is a sense of euphoria that comes at the end of a period of stressful bullshit. For example, let's say you've accepted a new job. Demob happy would be the period between getting that job and telling your current boss that he sucks and you quit. Of course, demob happy can also be applied to things like coming out of a horrible worldwide pandemic, for example. And while that term demob happy is primarily a British abbreviation born out of the anticipation of a demobilized military buildup in 1945, by definition, I think we've all kind of been there. So in 2008, when the band Demob Happy formed Newcastle, England, they weren't thinking of lockdowns or face masks or social distancing. They were thinking of something completely different. And yet, here they are 15 years later, releasing their first album in five years, enjoying a sense of euphoria coming out of a pandemic and into the stress of an album release and a U.S. tour. Demob Happy isn't just the name of the band. It actually turns out to be a prophetic handle loaded with irony. But here's the thing. The latest album by the band Demob Happy called Divine Machines also happens to kick ass. In fact, quite a lot of it. Their singles like Run Baby Run, Token Appreciation Society, and Voodoo Science are freaking great. And in my own opinion, their non-album single Sweet and Sour America is even better. Demob Happy are currently wrapping up a tour of the U.S. And after spending the last month or so listening to their music, I feel like I'm coming out of something pretty special too. And I like it. This is my conversation with Matthew Mark Antonio of Demob Happy on Baxi's Musical Podcast. So to be honest with you, you know, I I had never even heard the phrase Demob Happy until I started listening to your music about it, you know, in earnestly about a month ago. And then when I when I found out what it meant, I'm like, well, you know, that's ironic. I mean, it refers to a period of euphoria that happens when you're coming out of something terrible. I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. You're releasing a record. You're going on tour. I mean, you're literally living the definition of D-Mob Happy. That, the irony of that is pretty profound. Yeah. It's funny because we, we got the name so many years ago, uh, and it's just grown more and more in relevance since then. You know, like to begin with, it was just a cool name, just something that we thought sounded cool that we kind of didn't even know what it meant really. <laughs> but then as the years have passed, and life has kind of given us a lot of experiences and our philosophies have developed and things. It's, it's just kind of more relevant than it ever was. Coming out of a pandemic and coming out of what everyone's been through, again, it's just, it's just grown in relevance all the time. And I think it, in a way it feels kind of serendipitous to us for us to be getting a kind of, you know, we've been a band for a long time, but now we're getting uh, more exposure and more of a, a time in the, the limelight that we've ever had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without, uh, without a doubt, I mean, I, I, I've been listening to the new album divine machines for, for a little bit here. And I, and I, in all honesty, I think it's the strongest record you guys have put out so far. And I really like the first two records, dream soda and Holy doom, but there, there seems to have been, I don't know, it, it, since like 2019, when you guys released the single auto portrait, it seems like just something has clicked within that band. I mean, do you guys feel that too? And, and and if you do, tell me about what you might attribute that to. I think like, yeah, I think you're actually really right about Auto Portrait. Like from the moment 
even the one just before Autoportrait. Like, I think a few things aligned where we started to really nail what our sound was and what our identity was. And I think un until then, we'd always struggled with finding the right people to work with. Like, we had a very clear idea of how we wanted it to sound, but we didn't have the expertise or... Yeah knowledge to actually know how to do that ourselves and then we're always frustrated that it didn't quite sound how we wanted it to um but then from that record on it was the kind of tipping point for when things started to align like ah yeah this kind of makes sense now i know we know what our thing is and we're going to kind of hone that in you know I, th I think the earlier albums were more of an attempt at kind of more broader brush stroke but yeah. i think sort of focusing in and going ah yeah this is this is what we can do as kind of in a, in a sense like focused but also liberated us in a big way into a kind of broader i don't know a broader soundscape or yeah. a broader color palette which i think is what the new album's got in spades you know i absolutely agree with that and i think you know a lot of times it takes a couple albums or you know a, a good deal of time and a lot of hard work for a band to finally figure out you know what kind of band it wants to be and find their voice yeah, you guys. Uh, as I've read, you, you've you've always been a very much a, like a, a do-it-yourself sort of operation. You know, writing, arranging, you know, producing, yeah. and everything else. But obviously, when I listen to the new record, it it doesn't sound that way at all. It sounds like an album that there was a lot of very close attention to the details in recording that that music. Is that an accurate statement? Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, I'm like, you know, I produced the record, and I'm sort of very, very. I don't know, intrigued by that side of things. And I always kind of have been, you know, I've been making like music on computers and things since I was, I don't know, 13 or something, 20 years ago. But I think on this new record, it like just a few things finally clicked in my mind where yeah. I started to recognize, ah, right, that's kind of how it's done. <laughs> you know, like a few building blocks fell into place. Right. Um, and it sort of opened me up over lockdown to to really to really work and sort of like micro focus sounds like i don't know something bad but in this instance i think it was really it was really cool because i had so much space and time to really flesh out the the feeling and the like i said the kind of color palette of the record and experiment with things that we just didn't ever have the time to do before you know we were always kind of uh, rushed through the recording process due to like you know label budgets and stuff but this time it was like we recorded the basis of the album in february 2020 just before lockdown and then when it happened it was like okay so i've got all of this material to work from you know i'm gonna build it up and and really what you hear on the album is like maybe 60 70 percent of what i did we we basically just went into the studio and re-recorded the drums um, and some guitars and bits and bobs and things like yeah. that to sort of beef it up and so yeah it, it was a you, you're totally right like it was a time of, of real intense focus because i mean for a large part that's really got what got me through that sure. difficult time like everyone everyone had their thing and, and for me it was just i just threw myself into learning this craft in a way that i've never done before and you know we are diy we're I guess that has a kind of punk rock. I mean, we are punk rock in the in the fact that it's like it's so degrained in us our DIY ethos. But it doesn't mean it has to sound like punk. You know, it's <laughs> it's it can still be like. Yeah. So correct me if I'm I'm wrong about this. At least 
some of the record, if not all of the record, was recorded at Abbey Road, or is that, or is that something else? No, no, one of the songs was. Yeah, we got the chance to record it at Abbey Road. Uh, it was Hades Baby, the, the mm. last song on the record. Um, we got the chance to record there uh, because of like an Amazon music thing yep. where they put, they, they basically footed the bill, but we got to keep it. So we're like, fuck yeah, who's, the, who's, <laughs> who's not going to do that? Um, and I'm glad they did because it costs like that one session costs more than the whole album oh, to I make. <laughs> but, but we had like strings, we had like a brass section and we, and you know, we'd originally thought when we did that session, like, maybe we'll just do this as a separate thing and re-record it for the album. But when it came to the album, we were like, we can't not use this. It's just <laughs> too good. And it's Abbey Road, you know. I mean, that place, I mean, it's it's such hallowed ground. I'd be afraid to be, you know, to, to sit anywhere or, or touch anything. <laughs> I just, the history of that environment, it just has to be just, it, just the, the most overwhelming thing imaginable. It was completely insane. I mean, it's like Mecca, you know, for, for like a Beatles fan or, or a fan of just music, man. Like, it's just everything's been through there. It was amazing. Like, it's, it's just every single part of it has some history ingrained, you know, like that you just can't, you can't escape the prestige of the history of that place. But it's amazing because <laughs> you just get the, it's like a toy shop, you know, you just get to be there and use it all. Yeah. It's like, this is the Fairchild compressor that was used all over, like, the White Album, and you're just like, yeah, shit. All right, I'll use it all over this then, you know? Because who wouldn't? <laughs> of course. You might, you might, you're there. You might as well take advantage of it. Absolutely. You guys, yeah, you guys released this new album on, on Liberator Music, which is, which is a much bigger label yep. than, than, than you had been working with before that. And it's a subsidiary of uh, Mushroom Entertainment, which is this enormous uh, you know, company. Considering all the the changes in in the business of music over the last couple of years, how much more have they been able to help you in this situation than say what you were getting in, in other situations? I just think like the it points over lockdown for everyone. It was looking pretty bleak, but for us, like our label, uh, the label we had didn't want to. You know, the the album as you know as you have heard it was almost complete, really, and. Yeah they listened to it and they didn't want to do anything with it, you know? Um, so we were kind of free to have a look for other labels and, but it was the middle of lockdown. No one was, no one was signing anything, you know, it was, it was, everyone was just being very, very, very safe. But thankfully, like we managed to work with this, this new label, this new imprint of mushroom. And I think we just got extremely lucky, you know, obviously they, it speaks to the power of the record, but they, um, they just said, yeah, fuck, we, we absolutely want to do this. Yeah. And we just thought, yeah, 100%. Like, there's there's no one else is interested because of lockdown. Like, what? We'd be mad to turn it down, you know? And they've been amazing. They've been really good. There's some tremendous songs on the record that I really enjoyed a lot. Token Appreciation Society, Loved Run Baby <laughs> Run, Voodoo Science is Awesome. But interestingly enough, I think the song that I loved the most out of the whole thing was the non-album single "Sweet and Sour America." I thought that was a tremendous uh, so a song. Tell me about yeah. the decision to make that as a single and not necessarily as an album track. Well, we just we we put a lot of time and thought into the sequencing of records, and it didn't feel like it had a place on the record. It felt like it wasn't going to work within the flow. 
and we knew that we had enough heavy hitters on the record, enough singles um, like Token or Voodoo or Run Baby Run that we kind of knew that one more heavy hitter might be a little bit lost or a bit wasted and it would mean that we wouldn't be able to put some of the more um, kind of wider, softer or or kind of... This, I think I think the thing is we, we have a, a philosophy, which I think is true, is that, you know, the, the singles kind of open the doors, but the the way to people's hearts is, is really the album tracks. Like that's, you know, if you speak to anyone who really loves a band, it's not the singles they love, it's the album tracks. And I think for us, we thought we've got, we know we have so many songs which are beautiful, but that aren't singles and putting another single on the record is going to, it's more difficult for us, the, those songs, those album tracks to see the light of day. And so it kind of made sense really because we thought, well, we know we can release it further down the line. And in the, in the, in the, the way the world works now with streaming and stuff, it's, it's people just want new, 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 you know, all the time. And to have something as good as sweet and sour up our sleeves to like keep the, you know, that we can drop just at the start of this tour and keep everything going. We were like, this is kind of a better plan than putting it on the record, you know, yeah. might have been wasted or it wouldn't have been a single and we'd have to have kicked out another song like And I can't imagine which song we would have replaced it with because I love them all yeah. too much, you know. It, it's kind of a good one-two punch to have an album come out that, that's strong and then to re- and then to follow it up with with a single that's is just I mean, you know, to me when I hear it, it sounds a little bit like a continuation of Auto Portrait, which yeah. has already got 11 million streams on Spotify all in, all on its own. I mean, it's two very very strong songs, but to have that follow up the record, I think is very smart because I think it it prolongs the interest in the band. You release an album in yeah, May, sure. it could be forgotten about by October or November, but you know, here you are with a with another song, it brings everything back up, especially with, you know, streaming services where you know, you're not just get the one song, but you know, everything is now spit in front of you. Yeah, exactly, man. And I don't like the way it is at the minute. I'm looking forward to when all of these people like Spotify, you know, crumble and die because I think they're killing everything. <laughs> but for the for now, <laughs> like the only choice we have is to like play the game, you yeah. know? It, it's kind of an unfortunate situation where, you know, you know, physical media, you know, it, it's, it's a struggle to sell it. And, and certainly in the volume that, you know, had been say, you know, 15 years ago when you guys started, but the reality is as accessible as it may be for the consumer, I'm always amazed by how terrible it is for the artist <laughs> about how yeah, little this. comes back. It's, it's staggering how that business model is allowed to happen. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't work. That's the thing for the artist. It just, it's, it's riding on the goodwill of artists to keep making music because they love it. So it's this whole machine, which is just like a vampiric kind of virus, just, just sucking up all of this creative spirit from good meaning, well-meaning humans and <laughs> artists, you know, and it's, it's totally unsustainable, but I don't know what it's going to take yeah. before, because there's always going to be someone else who's willing to sacrifice their art and their souls for a chance, you know? And so I don't really know what will break the flow of that and break the cycle. It's going to have to be kind of system wide. I, I think one of the good things about music, and I think this has maybe always been true, is that it takes an awful lot to kind of predetermine what's going to happen next. And it's really true. hard. Yeah. It's really hard to predict. 
for for years and years and years, singles were the top selling thing, and no one would ever think you could ever put like you know ten songs on a record and make an album and sell it. Then all of a sudden, uh-huh. it did, and then you know everything became digital, and then you know you got this fight between vinyl and digital, and I don't think anybody could predicted where the market goes with that. But I think you know at at some point the artists and and record companies are just going to have to figure out all right then what's the next opportunity and i th- i think down the road yeah. you'll you will find it but it, it, at this moment it's it's a it's a tough go not just for you guys but for for, for everybody but i don't think there's anybody apart yeah. apart from taylor swift i don't think anyone has cracked the code on that yet well that's the thing and i mean it's these it's these massive artists who are reaping the rewards and they're just it it is i mean it's it's like the one percent idea but in the music industry, you know, like though it's only the very, very, very top of people who actually make any money out of it. Yeah. But you have to stream in like an unbelievable amount of, you know, hours to do that. It's it's crazy. That's but crazy. I think you're right. Like it's like the movie industry. Like no one can predict what's going to be. Like Oppenheimer was a big hit this year, but on paper, that's an absolute failure. Right. You know. So like, yeah, I like that about culture, though. It's it's as much as the money men try, they can't really ever predict which way culture's going culture's a moving target i mean it's it's always always in flux that's what makes culture so and art so interesting is it never stays in the same in one place for too long and that may be the thing that winds up saving music in in the long run at least i'm maybe i'm being overly optimistic (laughs) or whatever but i think that's really the truth yeah I, i agree it's it's just an epic struggle um that's gone on for ages you know us, us versus them. Like I don't think that's necessarily that dynamics going anywhere. Um, but you're right; it'll just evolve, and and then we'll we'll think of something new, and then they will, and then we will. You know, it just goes on and on. One of the uh, the things that I was uh, looking at that that was really you know, pretty interesting. You guys were a part of uh, of uh, of the recording of "Picture of You" for the "Just Like oh, Heaven" yeah. tribute to the Cure, which I thought was really really cool. Tell me Thanks. about that. How did you guys get selected for that? I think there was just like. Um, I guess I think the people who put it together were just fans and thought that we could do something cool. And I think they'd worked with another band who our manager works with Mm. um, and then heard of us and thought, oh, yeah, maybe they can do a unique angle on it. And for us, it was really cool, man. Like, um, I'm not going to claim to be a massive fan of The Cure, but I I love um, Disintegration, mainly through, like, my girlfriend just, like, (laughs) showing me that album. like it was a sort of part of the music world that had passed me by really like eighties kind of goth. Like right. I'd been more into kind of eighties, more like, um, I don't know, maybe more the pop and electronic stuff, but the goth stuff I hadn't ever really dipped my toes in, but then actually really found that I loved that album. And so when it came up, it was like, yeah, I think we can do something to this. <laughs> and it was, it was a kind of cool session, man. It was, yeah. we, it was a real experimentation. And the thing is that song is so kind of free form and jazzy in that nothing really repeats twice. And it's all a very unfamiliar sort of structure. And we really had to kind of plot it out and go, okay, this happens here. Like the song is like 43 bars long or, or whatever. Like this happens here, this happens here, this happens here. And really kind of, plotted out because we knew that we wouldn't ever really be able to digest it and and reproduce it organically because sure. because it is so free form and oh, it's almost like a kind of jam you know so we had to be like all right this is where that part comes in this is where the vocals come in this right. is where that 
and so really it was kind of cool we sort of built it up and plotted it out and got a good drum sound and actually ended up just using like a drum loop for the drums the whole time because it just felt kind of really stable and machine like and built the song up and then really just tried to find a balance of like honoring the original song that we all loved and bringing something of us to it you know it can be a difficult balance uh, i didn't we didn't want to try and change it that much you know but certainly put your own stamp on it too yeah really tr- we really tried to i think we struck the balance yeah i think um, it did yeah i'm proud of that i think it's really cool you know when whenever I, you know as as a as a music nerd like anybody else you know whenever i hear a band for the very first time it's you know it's kind of like trying to put a puzzle together trying to figure out okay well where are the influences here you know what what were they listening to yeah. you know yeah as as they were you know building their sound and and, and when i listen to you guys I hear a lot of different things and you know, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure some of it is, is, is accurate. And some of it is probably, you know, all in my head doesn't really matter one way or another, but you know, I hear, uh-huh. I hear things like, like, like Beatle harmonies. I hear things like, you know, queen uh-huh. of the stone age, maybe some late era killing joke. And I definitely hear, uh, you know, some white stripes in there too. First of all, mm-hmm. am, am I yeah. remotely close on, on, on any of that? Yeah, man. I mean, you, the first two hit the nail on the head. Like we always, we, we get, you know, a lot of the time people say we sound like Queens of Stone Age meets the Beatles, like a kind of cross between those things. And it couldn't be more accurate, really. Like the music that we grew up with, you know, me personally was like 70s classic rock. Yeah. Um, through my, my dad, people like the Beatles, Supertramp, Pink Floyd, 10CC kind of, you know, bits of heavier stuff, Zeppelin, maybe some Sabbath just all of the good sort of classic rock. Right. And then when I then came into my, I don't know, exploration, what was as musically the stuff that I fell in love with was White Stripes, Queens of Stone Age, The Strokes, Kings of Leon, UK indie bands like Franz Ferdinand and and that sort of thing. And Death From Above, who we're actually touring with um, now, you know, bands like that. And I think it was never thought about but we liked the heavier more modern rock but with all of the songwriting sensibilities of kind of 10cc or the beatles you know yeah um and very naturally i think we just sort of combined those things especially from the the second album onwards i think on that on the first album it was people always it's always frustrated me that we kind of get got the grunge label and mm-hmm. it sort of stuck around like a bad smell that label <laughs> and it's it's not that we don't like grunge but we were never trying to do that and i think the thing we were never trying to be a grunge band i just think that in actual fact what kurt cobain was trying to do with nirvana which was write beatles songs but heavier stuff was what we were trying to do right and i think in the first album that's how it came out so as opposed because i'm never really I, you know I listened to a bit of Nirvana, but I was never really a big fan and was never really a fan of any of the other grunge bands. But like we said, you know, you know, in, in the process of finding your voice and, and, you know, clearly you've, you feel like you've, you've may have gotten it with a third record, you know, it's unfortunate to judge a band based on that first record, even if the first record is great, because you're right. Yeah. I mean, I can see where some people may say, well, there's some grunge elements to this, but I wouldn't have called uh-huh. you a grunge band either. But you know, so many people will, and and they'll and they'll yeah. stamp you with that 
in indelible ink for the rest of your career when in fact that's not what you were about yeah it's it is kind of frustrating because we release something like some of the glammiest kind of rock pop you know like that we love like we love making stuff glam like we're huge t-rex fans and like we love that and then some lazy journalist will just be like you know grunge three-piece d-mob release new <laughs> song like and it's like what the fuck are you talking about grunge have you heard this this is like mother machine it's like a kind of glam space opera yeah it's like it couldn't be less grunge like what the fuck are you on about right and it's it's more just frustrating but i think that label is like beginning to leave us really i think it's become undeniable that we're just clearly not a grunge band well and i, I and i think when people hear divine machines i think you're absolutely right this is something that that you know grunge would never have even touched you know, you know, back yeah. then. This is something very, very different. I, I want to ask you about, I, I know that you guys at one time, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, we both mentioned, you know, White Stripes. I know you guys had a chance to tour with Jack White, uh, you know, a while back mm-hmm. and even, uh, you know, play with him a little bit. Tell me about that and, and, and touring with, uh, with Jack, because, uh, I love the guy. Yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, it was a dream come true, really. I mean, it was such an honor. Like he's an absolute hero of ours. Um, and it was just, it was just kind of surreal, man. It was like, you know, he, him and his um, drummer at the time, uh, I believe she's called Cara. She, apparently they had the list of bands and they selected us. So we were wow. like, what? That's, That's crazy. <laughs> you know, like, um, so it was, it was very kind of humbling and, and it was just, it was just kind of awe-inspiring, man. It, awesome. was, it was so cool. To see the way he did stuff, the, the 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 repertoire that he has, and the way the band just made up the set every night, you know, you would just be like, right, we're playing this obscure blues song right now, and the band have to just be like, okay, they just need to know it, you know, it's yeah. it's quite amazing. And he was a great dude, and his whole team were like really nice, and yeah. But when it was, it I think I think when he invited us to play with him on stage in the last show, it was. It was kind of like a real affirmation for us of a kind of, it felt like, right, we've arrived, you know, yeah, people, no. our heroes take us seriously. Therefore we feel serious now, you know? <laughs> yeah. I would imagine it's a, it's a great sense of validation when a guy like Jack White, who's had you on the tour says, Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm not intimidated by a band that want to be really good as an opener. Let's bring them on. That's, I think that's so uh, cool. So cool. It was super cool. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. So this tour that you're on through, uh, you know, through the U.S., you started off in, in Mexico City on this thing. Was there a particular reason for that? Was it like a was it a logistics or why Mexico City? I mean, we, it's a place we've always wanted to play, and when the opportunity and uh, came up for us to play it, we would we just jumped at it. You know, yeah. um, there wasn't really like a logistical reason or anything like that. It was just it made sense for us you know the, the the offer came in from the promoter they wanted to do it and our agent managed to make it work yeah. at the start of the tour and then that was it really and i mean we were just we just said fuck yeah we've always <laughs> wanted to go it kind of mexico and japan have been the sort of top of our list of places to go and visit and play for a long time so that's great we never played japan yet but we've done mexico now what's the the plan after that are you, you going to continue to tour you know, back at home or, or or what's the the next step well, we just did the UK and Europe leg before this one in the US. So now we're going to take a, a little bit of time off. We're just, it's been nonstop really for um, not like, not ages, you know, not like a hiatus, but just a few months just because yeah. it's been nonstop with the, um, 
with making divine machines it, it, and then making the videos you know when when you're as diy as we are and you are involved in every facet of what what happens <laughs> it's exhausting yeah you know i bet I we bet. need a bit of time just a bit of space and then, and then after that we're going to make new music well matt i i've like I said, I've really enjoyed listening to the Divine Machines. I've enjoyed listening to all of it, frankly, and and, uh, and love the new singles. And so it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I wish you guys all the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. The name of the new album from D-Mob Happy is called Divine Machines, now on Liberator Music. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for all the latest updates. And you can also email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.